What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Some of the stories we're following this week include the criminal fine and penalty assessed against Bluebell Ice Cream, the indictment of its former CEO and its board of directors failures. We look at rough sailing ahead for CCOs in the cruise industry. The SEC responds to criticism and ramps up its whistleblower awards. Moro resigns in Brazil, setting off a political crisis. The New York DFS files an action against an opioid manufacturer for insurance fraud. Are you lost in the sea of regulations? Christy Grant Hart explains how to navigate it. Yet another Caremark case survives in Delaware. Gert Vermelon asks if the U.S. government purchased goods from a sanctioned entity. Should decision-making exist rather than risk management? Norman Marks explores. We review some of the week's top podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, including a new series of podcasts on the Compliance Life this month with Ellen Hunt. We look at my discussion with Nick Gallows on his Compliance Line podcast. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 204 for the week ending, May 8, 2020, the Bad Ice Cream Edition. Uh, so, in addition to not following President Trump's advice to have bleach for breakfast and UV light for lunch, we now add a dessert kicker, no bluebell ice cream, has been added to the no-eat no list for their criminal behavior leading to the deaths of three users of their product from Listeria. Sad for this loss, but determined to persevere, self-distancing, Jay and myself are back to consider some of the week's top compliance articles and stories which caught our collective eye. Jay, what say you? Uh, I would say uh, Blue Bell is just a dark black eye for a iconographic Texas dessert, and I think we should dive right in and look at the facts. So first we have the Astros and now Bluebell. I suppose the only thing left is the Alamo. So uh, Bluebell had uh, one of the worst weeks since uh, their last worst week. And they've had lots of those over the past four years, starting in 2015 when three patients at a hospital died after ingesting Bluebell ice cream. Turned out that the uh, Bluebell ice cream was infected with listeria. The uh, 10 people ended up getting sick only three deaths were reported at that time. Unfortunately for the company, uh, they not only knew about the listeria, but it had hidden it. And this led to this past week, Bluebell pled guilty to criminal charges for distribution of uh, tainted food products. The former CEO of the company, uh, Paul Cruz, was indicted criminally for uh telling regulators and the public 
that Bluebell was withdrawing its products from grocery store shelves when, in fact, it was not. Turned out also that uh, he had knowledge of the Listeria warnings and did not tell the board about it. Uh, But even going further back, he had internally, these warnings were given to him by state health officials in Texas. And prior to that time, uh, he had uh, stopped the company from testing for Listeria after uh, some nefarious information came to light in routine safety testing. So uh, the board of directors had earlier this year a huge uh, defeat in the Delaware Supreme Court uh, around not following its duties. Uh, One was to be uh, have no conflict of interest, and it turned out that over half the board of directors uh, owed their position on the board and indeed their entire livelihoods to Paul Cruz, so they weren't going to vote against him. Then uh, they uh, completely, totally, and utterly failed in their Caremark duties to have a compliance program and actually uh, oversee it. Uh, they claim that uh, simply because the company reported to them, that was enough. Well, it's not. So uh, the trifecta against Bluebell, the company, the former CEO, and the board, uh, I, uh, for one, am not going to be eating Bluebell anytime soon. Jay, what about you? I'm going to take your advice. Uh, so uh, I guess we should look at another consumer product that's out there under the um, microscope with covid uh, this comes to us from the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. And uh, not only did Matt write about this in Radical Compliance, but both of you spoke about this on Compliance into the Weeds. Uh, the facts are Royal Caribbean International has agreed to an exhausting set of criteria from the CDC so the cruise line can evacuate its employees from ships stuck at sea, including the risk of civil and uh, criminal penalties for senior executives. The three major cruise lines, Royal Caribbean, Carnival Cruises, and Norwegian Cruise Line, have roughly, and this is a big number, 100,000 employees stranded on ships in U.S. waters. Because the ships are life-size petri dishes for COVID-19, the feds have been reluctant to let the cruise lines remove their employees. The CDC has proposed a plan to allow the cruise line employees to leave, but it wasn't so easy. No employees taking public transportation home, no employees staying at hotels, and no employees mixing with the public generally while they disembark. The kicker, each cruise line CEO, chief medical officer, and the chief compliance officer would also need to attest that all employees would meet these terms or risk civil prosecution. Initially, all three of the cruise lines balked, but recently Royal Caribbean got over themselves and decided to go along with the deal. So the question is, how hot is the water uh, for the cruise ship industry? To be clear, the CDC agreement only warns that false or misleading statements or omissions may result in criminal and civil actions for fines, penalties, damages, and imprisonment. We've also seen numerous news reports that the cruise industry knew that COVID-19 posed a clear imminent threat to the safety of passengers, crews, and public. They have uh, identified at least 100 cruise ships that set sail on March 4th, which was way after the March 1st announcement of the COVID-19 plague. The first day that a passenger died of COVID-19 while on a cruise stopping in the United States, and the March 4th death happened a month after the Japanese government quarantined Carnival cruise ships. 
So, Tom, what did you and Matt discuss on Into the Weeds? Uh, what is the path for the cruise in- industry to follow if there is a light at the end of the tunnel? So, Jay, we took, a, obviously, a deep dive into this, and it, it really turns on several different things. One, the cruise industry knew uh, as of March 4th there had been deaths within the industry, yet it sent another, I don't know, 100 ships out past that time. The CDC has put some very onerous uh, restrictions, regulations, and uh, parameters around the crew disembarking, and uh you know, query, is that warranted? Well, the CDC certainly thinks so. Uh, and they need accountability and transparency, which is something definitely not within the cruise lines um, previously uh, a witness that they are uh, flagged offshore, meaning they're not U.S. companies. So they did that to avoid U.S. taxes. So um, the cruise line industry is has been and probably will be decimated by this uh, in addition to not meeting, eating Bluebell, I'm certainly not going to get on a cruise ship uh, anytime soon. And it may be a, several years before significant numbers of uh, people do going forward. Jay, we had uh, some interesting news from the SEC this week. As reported by Dave Michaels at the Wall Street Journal, the SEC has finally gotten around to ramping up its whistleblower awards. Over $64 million have been given out in the first seven fis- months of this fiscal year for the SEC. That's more than all of uh, uh, 2018, uh, 2019. rather. Uh, the SEC had come under withering criticism for making, making people work wait four to five years to get some awards, and it appears that they've uh, put real effort into um, trying to, to cut down on the backlog. Jordan Thomas, chair of uh, whistleblower practice at Labaton Sutero, was quoted in the article as saying the SEC is putting more resources than ever into dealing with this backlog, and he and his firm are starting to see the benefits. The um, the SEC itself said they've made significant strides to streamline and accelerate the evaluation of claims and the recent increase in the number of whistleblower awards reflects that effort. Certainly, um, the uh, SEC had uh, really uh, dropped the ball and was taking uh, way too long. So this is great news for the whistleblower bar, for the greater compliance community, and I would uh, uh, argue for corporate America as well, Jay. Great. So next up, Tom, we've got an article uh, for us by Jesse Bullock on the Global Anti-Corruption blog. And she's taking a look at the resignation of Brazilian Justice Minister Sergio Moro. And she's giving reflections on how key players should handle the political crisis. If a global pandemic and mounting economic crisis weren't enough, Brazil now faces political crisis. As last Friday, April 24th, actually two weeks ago, Sergio Moro, the former judge in the Operation Car Wash anti-corruption trial, had become Minister of Justice in the administration of far-right President Jair Bolsonaro. But his ministerial post, and uh, he resigned his ministerial post and accused President Bolsonaro of multiple improprieties having to do with apparent interference with ongoing federal criminal investigations. Moro stated that Bolsonaro fired the head of the federal police without Moro's necessary approval, and indeed he forged Moro's signature electronically. Because according to Moro, Bolsonaro was concerned about investigations under the federal Supreme Court. This was not the first time President Bolsonaro had meddled in the Ministry of Justice. It's hard to exaggerate the significance of Moro's resignation, 
for Brazilian politics. And for the future of Brazil's fight against systemic corruption, the resignation of the senior minister on the grounds of alleged presidential interference in an investigation would be an enormous scandal under any circumstances. Um, we must. We might want to know a bit more about the larger context and how this became a national. How he became a nationally prominent figure, due to his role in presiding over some of the highest-profile investigations and trials in the car wash anti-corruption investigation, including the trial of former President Lula of the Left Wing Workers Party, the PT. The car wash investigation also led to the impeachment and removal of Lula's successor, Dilla Rousseff. Lula's disqualification and the taint of corruption for the attached to the PT party due to the car wash operation created a window of opportunity for Bolsonaro in the 2019 election. Bolsonaro, while a far-right politician who had been considered a marginal figure at best, ran on an anti-corruption platform, claiming that only he could clean up the corrupt Brazilian system. Sounds like certain other guarantees made to us by a presidential figure who only had the power to do things. Lula's disqualification in the taint. Oops, sorry. Moro's resignation is as shocking and a new twist to the ongoing drama in Brazil. Until recently, he was condemned by the far rest as far left as Lula's jailer. Now he is condemned by the far right as a traitor. With some Brazilians, he's still a popular anti-corruption standard bearer, and it's understandable that the considerable speculation both about Moro's future and about the immediate ramifications of this dramatic resignation, what it forms for the Bolsonaro government. So how should the various actors in this drama handle the situation going forward? For the Congress, unsurprisingly, talk of further investigations into Moro's allegations and a possible impeachment of President Bolsonaro began immediately after Moro's press conference. In terms of the federal police and the other investigative agencies, if Moro's allegations are true, they expose a serious weakness in Brazilian law enforcement's ability to independently investigate wrongdoing by senior government officials. And lastly, Moro himself. Some speculated that accuse him of being an opportunistic snake who joined Bolsonaro's administration when he thought it could be a stepping stone to a seat on the Supreme Court. But despite his popularity and opinion polls, Murrow needs to understand that he's lost a lot of credibility with the anti-corruption community and important segments of the Brazilian public. Murrow could do more good working with civil society and the government to improve Brazil's long-term corruption fighting prospects. So uh, a real morass going on down there in Brazil. Jay, we had an interesting development in the opioid war as um, the New York Department of Financial Services has filed an enforcement action against an opioid opioid manufacturer for insurance fraud. The uh, U.S. or Irish company, rather, uh, Mellencrop, I know I butchered that, but I'm not going to even try any better than that, um, an action was brought by the DFS alleging that uh, the uh, pharmaceutical company disseminated seemingly truthful scientific information, but that hid, hid information of the long-term uh, effects of opioid use, most particularly their addictive effects. They failed to identify reporter halts suspicious orders, and their paid uh, sales representatives delivered um, misleading messages to healthcare professionals. What's interesting about this is the um, suit for health 
excuse me, for insurance fraud because the allegations are that because of the misrepresentations of the efficacy and safety of opioids to patients and healthcare professionals, it caused an overprescription of the drugs, the cost of which was ultimately passed on to New York insurance companies and their policyholders. So uh, this is a certainly novel approach to take, but it opens up a new front against opioid manufacturers, at least in the state of New York. The DFS's theories, uh, legal theories, including their reliance on the multi-step causal change chains and the aiding and abetting principles, represent a novel and aggressive application of New York law. Uh, I would expect that this action will be uh, contested. It's an administrative action. So it's going to be interesting to see um, what the uh, DFS continues to do and how this will uh, play out. Um, going forward. And this comes to us from the Compliance and Enforcement blog over at the uh, New York University Program on Corporate Enforcement and Corporate <coughs> Compliance and Enforcement. And it's a group of lawyers from Paul Weiss. Next up, we have a, a friend of the podcast, Christy Grant Hart. She's writing in the Risk and Compliance Matters blog by Navix Global. And her topic is finding your footing in a sea of regulations and guidance. There was a time when compliance officers clamored for more specific regulation and guidance. During the past several years, however, what used to be a dearth of specific enumerated expectations has become a sea of guidance that can be hard to track, much less interpret and implement in your program. With all of the major pronouncements in 2019 by U.S. authorities, 2020 may portend to be a slow year for national guidance. Stateside, the CCPA isn't finished yet, so expect more guidance on this law. And be aware of potential for new laws that may come in force with the next national election in November. On the international front, prosecutors under the GDPR will likely produce significant guidance by the Article 29 Working Party, European Data Protection Board, and individual countries' data protection authorities. So what's a compliance officer to do? Try out the following to find your sea legs. Here's some steps for organizations to take. First off, perform a two-step application review. There are two different analyses to complete to find out what guidance really applies to you and your firm. Compliance areas of expertise need to be enumerated specifically so you know what to track. And if compliance remit is antitrust, bribery, data privacy, or trade sanctions, then it's your responsibility to track those issues. The second analysis is which regulations and guidance apply to your company. Look carefully at your business. If privacy is in your remit, do you serve California residents and meet the other criteria such that you're caught by the CCPA? Is your business solely outside of the U.S.? If so, the DOJ has little bearing on you. Open up your risk assessment. Prosecutors have slowly recognized that boiling the ocean is not a realistic expectation. The near-universal endorsement of using a risk-based approach should make the compliance world smile. One can't apply a risk-based approach unless one has reviewed the risks. Assuming you have a written risk assessment, pull it out, review the various risks facing your company. Now here's an interesting one. Let someone else do the work for you. You don't have to read every piece of legislation or guidance. Law firms and consultants are happy to do this for you and provide you with updates, checklists, and webinars. You might be able to even get a free session of continuing education at your company if you ask nicely. 
find synergies. When it comes down to it, the world's regulators have more or less agreed on what makes a good compliance program, whether you're considering adequate procedures defense under the UK Bribery Act, or you're looking at an effective compliance program under the U.S. federal sentencing guidelines. These common elements include a code of conduct, policies, procedures, training, risk assessment, monitoring and auditing, good governance, due diligence, investigations, whistleblowing, and promoting an ethical culture. When looking at the guidance and regulations that apply to your program, look for synergies across various guides. For instance, completing a risk assessment is an expectation requirement under the federal sentencing guidelines, as well as the DOJ antitrust guidelines and OFACT as well. And here's the last thing. Look for the low-hanging fruit. Within every piece of guidance or new regulation, there is probably low-hanging fruit for your program. For instance, if CCPA applies, call your e-learning company and find out if they have a CCPA course that you can use. By using these strategies, you can face the onslaught of guidance with a plan. You can focus on what really matters for your company and drown out the white noise, and this will have you sleeping like a baby. Jay, we next have an article from our friend Kevin LaCroix over at the DNO Diary, and we have yet another Delaware breach of duty uh, case involving oversight, or lack of oversight, I should say, from a compliance com- um Uh, from a board of directors. I uh, highlighted some of the uh, obligations under the Caremark decision in the discussion in Bluebell Ice Cream. The Delaware Supreme Court case is styled Marchand versus Barnhill. Bluebell's not the name. Uh, I've linked to that in the uh, uh, article I I wrote about the board, so that's in the show notes if you're so inclined to read it. But um, there's another case that came out. And, uh, Jay, in the trial lawyer world, we usually say bad facts make bad law. Well, these were terrible facts. Uh, It didn't make bad law because the facts were so bad, and it was a complete violation of Caremark. What we had was a uh, Chinese company bought a U.S. company. So reverse merger so that a Chinese company uh, uh, took over a publicly traded uh, Delaware corporation. And they uh, wholly failed in their duties to do provide any oversight uh, for compliance. There were only three meetings of the audit committee over three years, and uh, there were no uh, no oversight functions engaged in by the um, uh, audit committee. They call, wholly failed to implement, uh, really implement reporting policies or system of controls. They didn't monitor compliance. Um, they had just the barest trappings of oversight, which was the existence of a committee, allegedly an, a CFO, an internal audit department, a code of ethics. So uh, pretty clearly this this was going to be a, a Caremark violation. Uh, really, Jay, though, it brings up the, the bigger issue of Chinese corporations. And I can remember probably five or more years ago, I was at a conference and uh, somebody raised their hand and said, well, you know, we've got all these onerous obligations and when are we going to, you know, they're keeping Chinese money from coming out to the U.S. And my first thought was, what an idiot. Uh, But what I told him was, the problem is those companies didn't follow the law and it doesn't matter what the law was, they weren't going to follow it. And you were going to lose your money uh, because they were going to steal it all. And that's exactly what these reverse mer- mergers lent themselves into doing. So um, 
In addition to not eating blue, not eating bluebell ice cream or taking a cruise, I would heartily suggest if you have any interest in investing in a Chinese uh, U.S. company that was bought by Chinese investors, don't run away. Uh, don't walk away. Run away. Thanks, Tom. So uh, next, next up, this comes to us from the Risk and Compliance Platform Europe. Uh, we check in with our fav- favorite uh, compliance officer from the EU, Gert Vermolen. He's got a couple questions that were asked to him by the VCO, the Dutch Compliance Officers Association. And he also takes a look at a situation. Did the U.S. government purchase uh, equipment from a sanctioned entity? Uh, the VCO asks, which COVID-19 related specific integrity risks do you see that compliance officers should not lose sight of? Gert says that within, as with any crisis, this is a very interesting time from the point of view of ethics and compliance. At the macro level, we see that governments have to weigh the various human rights against each other. What weighs more heavily, the right to live, and how much should that cost? How many sacrifices are we prepared to make in terms of economic prosperity? To what extent are we prepared to give up a number of freedoms, such as the right to go and stand wherever we want, the right to gather, and the right to privacy? for the lives of a limited number of people. Apparently, we are prepared to sacrifice a lot for that, especially if the possible consequences are clearly visible and noticeable. In crisis situations like this, it becomes quickly clear what rat values really matter to the organization, and has the organization adopted the shareholder's model or the stakeholder's model? Last year, a large number of CEOs of U.S. companies signed a statement which they promised that they would no longer strive for shareholder value only, as they noticed that they were losing the credit and trust of society. How an organization deals with these issues can have a major impact on its reputation. Gert recently stumbled upon a story that the U.S. government had purchased respiratory equipment from an entity owned by Rostect, a sanctioned Russian entity. In doing so, the U.S. government contravened its own policy and conducted business with a Russian state-owned company, active in military industry, that was put on the sanctions list after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And by the way, Rostec is also the company that produced a BUK rocket that, as we may now safely assume, brought down an MH-17 passenger airplane, so killing hundreds of innocent people. Did the end saving American lives justify the means? And finally, in order to keep the Dutch economy afloat, the Dutch government is releasing large amounts of capital into the system, just like has happened here in the U.S., and it has called upon banks to make loans available to people. There seems to be plenty of opportunity for dishonest practices, and it strikes skirt that the Dutch government is primarily making a moral appeal to society in this respect. They not only call upon people and organizations to apply for subsidies only if they need them, but they also need to stay at home and not to come together in groups. As a self-employed person, uh, Gert has been working mainly from homes for the last four and a half years, and he's noticed that there are a lot of people now are forced to do the same and often notice that it's not as bad as they thought. Of course, nothing beats real face-to-face contact with people, but with the current technical tools that we are getting closer and closer to this experience. So his advice is to pay attention. Many people and companies are under pressure. Normal control measures are being pushed aside, 
Large sums of money are coming from unexpected sources, and strange things can happen as a result. Companies and individuals are faced with difficult ethical dilemmas. Make sure you are as close to the decision-making process as you can get so you can provide timely advice. Stay in touch with each other, and if necessary, digitally. Also tap into new contacts. Perhaps that will serve you and allow you to provide creative insights. We had some great additions to the Compliance Podcast Network this week. Are you interested in moving up to the CCO chair? Check out this month's edition of the Compliance Life, where I visit with Ellen Hunt, CCO at AARP. In part one, which premiered on Tuesday, we discussed the start of her journey. Each new episode appears Tuesday at May during May at 1 p.m. CST. The Compliance Life is now available on iTunes as well. I had a very wide-ranging discussion with Nick Gallo on Compliance Line's new podcast, The Ethics Experts. It's also available on the Compliance Podcast Network. This week on Compliance and Coronavirus, I had James Gellert, CEO of Rapid Ratings, on the financial health of third parties as a key due diligence inquiry. Ben Wolf of Wolf's Edge Consulting talked to us about the new normal of doing business after COVID-19. And Fry Wernick, uh, partner at Vincent Elkins and former DOJ prosecutor in the FCPA unit, talked about ephemeral messaging and video conferencing issues under the FCPA. On the Compliance Podcast Network, I also continue my month-long exploration of written standards. So uh, on Monday, we took a look at clearly articulated written standards. Tuesday, your code of conduct. Wednesday, the structure and format of your code of conduct. Thursday, the design of your code of conduct. And Friday, training on your code of conduct. 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program also has its own iTunes channel. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance. On behalf of myself and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, we would like to wish you a very healthy and safe weekend. Don't eat any Bluebell ice cream, but do join us again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you again for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories which caught our eye, including commentary. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network, and we're a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll check us out on any number of sites, including iTunes, C-Suite Radio, the Compliance Podcast Network, FCPA Compliance Report, iHeartRadio, Spotify, etc. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll visit with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.